Let's start with prayer this morning. Lift up Brad Cardwell and his family and uh, Morris Bean ministering to and equipping the IGO uh, teams that are going out. Let's pray. Lord, this morning before we lift up some specific things in, in front of you in regards to how we spend these next few minutes, I want to lift up uh, Brad and his family and are just thankful for his opportunity to minister through the IGO uh, global ministry. Lord, I want to pray for his week, his weekend and week uh, that will be spent uh, working with students in base camps and equipping them to take a good, robust, healthy seed to the far corners of the field. Lord, we pray that you will fuel Brad by worship and with worship. Pray that he will be encouraged in the time that he spends with students. Share a burden that the IGO ministry shares for young men to participate in things like this, that it not be so young lady heavy, but that uh, some men would step up and participate as well. Um, Pray also for Morris as he is uh, ministering to these kids by cooking and tending to them and coming alongside them and encouraging them. Just pray that he will be fueled by worship and encouraged as he participates. Lord, in regards to how we spend the next few minutes as as this people that's gathered this morning and how we spend this next month together, Lord, first of all, I'm thankful for the equipment and the goods for a new set of eyes and a new plan and a new method for dealing with what seems so uh, available in conflict. I'm thankful that we don't have to run from it. We don't have to avoid it. We don't have to play like it's not there. I'm thankful that we can have a new set of eyes discerning what you're doing in conflict and that by your grace and your mercy and your spirit working through us, that you can be glorified in and through it. Pray that you will guide these next few minutes that we spend together to your truth and equip us for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to Joshua chapter 22. I'll give you a little bit of background where we're going, or a little bit of heads up where we're going in these next few minutes, and where we're going this month. It's probably been a month and a half or so ago. It may have been as short as a month, but it seems like it's been a month and a half. Scott and I had the opportunity to go to Maryland to receive some training. We went to a conference there. It was not the typical conference that we've gone to in the past where you kind of sit and soak. But we went to a unique conference that's a big part of the time that we spent doing role-playing where we're working through conflict with people. This ministry that we connected to is um, it's called the Peacemakers Ministry. A guy named Ken Sandy wrote a book called Peacemakers. Uh, I would say having read the book and having worked through the workbooks that go along with it and having gone to the conference, that I would rank this book and the equipment that's given in this book right up there with the other book that I would say are in the top two apart from our Bibles, um, which would be Living by the Book by Howard Hendricks. I would say if any Christian is going to have two things that they need to work through, that they want to work through, two things that would be, I would recommend on your top two would be Howard Hendricks' Living by the Book and 
Ken Sandy Peacemakers. And I'll tell you right now, neither of them are full of funny stories, interesting stories. They're not easy reads. They're not hard reads. But they're not those kind of reads that you're just caught up in. But it is good, solid equipment that I would feel like every Christian should have. This training that we went through, Scott and I were just so encouraged and blessed to participate in it. You may not realize that you send us to things like that. So having that sort of mindset, we realize that we have a responsibility then to go walk in what we've heard, what we've been equipped with. And that's not only in personal pastoral settings, but also in the pulpit. So we're going to spend this month really building into y'all what was built into us. Scott and I both. He, I'll be preaching this Sunday, Scott the next. I'll be preaching the next two Sundays after that, and then Scott the last Sunday of the month. And there's a slight possibility that this month of conflict might turn into, instead of five Sundays, six Sundays, just keeping in, in, in step with our norms that um, take a little more time. There's a, a possible sixth sermon in there. But Scott and I are pretty excited about what we have a chance to engage in these next few Sundays together because conflict is everywhere. I don't think any of us could deny that we don't have to look for it. It finds us. God has a great sense of humor. I, you know, here I am preparing to preach this morning. I have worked on this sermon the last couple of weeks, and um, I can't remember the last time Christy and I have argued about anything. I mean, it's been some time. I mean, we do. You need to know that Christy and I argue. But it's been some time. I just can't remember when the last time was. And this morning, I'm getting my vitamins out, and I'm leaned over the counter, and my shirt, I have this one shirt this isn't that shirt, but I had this one shirt that opens up right there at the belly button when I'm leaning over, and it just will show the world my belly button. And Christy, she didn't know that she thought I might be wearing that shirt, so she reaches out and grabs this little tuft of shirt right here, alerting me to the possibility, and I'm like, this isn't that shirt, and it turned into an argument. And I'm just thinking all morning, God has such a great sense of humor and great timing because it humbles me before I step in the pulpit because I could possibly come off like I got this all figured out. And it's a great conditioner for this preacher to go, oh man, nobody's arrived in this. This is a lifelong journey of learning how to humble yourself and how to work through conflict. And I'm hoping that these next five Sundays, possibly six Sundays, will be that for you as we humbly consider uh, conflict and how God can be glorified through it. I don't know about you, but I'm an expert at getting into it. I really am, and I'm not so expert at working through it and getting out of it. So I needed these goods. I feel like for the first time in nine years, as I'm sitting with a couple, for example, that's working through marital conflict or sitting working with people, that two guys that maybe cross ways with each other, I feel like for the first time in nine years that I have some really good instruments to work with. In the last nine years, I'm sure God has used occasions where we've gone to a previous sermon or we've turned to a text and we've kind of worked through things. But I feel like finally, after nine years, I've got a set of instruments that's proven, that works. And y'all are going to get those instruments in the next five to six Sundays. What I want to do this morning first, well, let me tell you the title of the message to kind of give you an insight into where we're going. The, the upcoming Sundays are all titled similarly. This one is um, Conflict, an Opportunity for God's Glory. That's the title of today, An Opportunity for God's Glory. 
Next week is an opportunity to serve others. Um, the next week is conflict, an opportunity to grow to be like Christ. They all kind of fit together in a theme with a foundational reality, seeing conflict not as something to be avoided, not as something to, be, to play like it's not there, but actual, an actual opportunity. And today we're going to deal with it in regards to conflict being an opportunity to glorify God. So what I want to do in showing you that this morning is I want to show you four different types of conflict and show you what God can do with those. Joshua chapter 22. Let me give you a little bit of background. This is the first type of conflict. This is conflict and misunderstandings that have to do with poor communication. That's the first type. Conflict or misunderstandings that have to do with poor communication. Let me give you a little context for Joshua chapter 22. The nation of Israel has wandered in the desert for 40-something years. They cross over the Jordan. Moses dies. Then they cross over the Jordan. And then they go into the promised land to conquer. They fit the battle of Jericho. You know, they go have their behinds handed to them at Ai. They regroup, and then they conquer the land. They don't do such a great job of it, but for the most part, they conquer the land. At the beginning of the book of Joshua, God gives the direction through Joshua to tell all the tribes and their leadership that all the warriors need to participate in this conquest. All the warriors from every tribe need to participate in this conquest. And then after they've participated, after the land has been conquered, then those warriors from each of their tribes can go to their inheritance. Each of the tribes, minus the Levites, has a piece of land, a a territory. And the setting for this story here in Joshua chapter 22, or this little narrative, is there are three tribes that don't have land on the west side of the Jordan. That's the tribe of Gad, the tribe of Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And Manasseh was sort of split between two different halves, east and west. So just envision this. Moses dies at Nebo. The nation of Israel crosses over the Jordan. Everybody crosses over the Jordan. The warriors go fight all the battles, conquer the land. And then once that's done, those three tribes, Gadites, Reubenites, and the east tribe of Manasseh, goes back across the Jordan into their territory. There's only these three tribes that are on the east side of the Jordan. Everybody else is in Canaan on the west side. Okay, that's where we pick up in chapter 22 of Joshua. I'm going to read the whole chapter just so you get the, uh, the swoop, sweep of what's going on. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said, You guys have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and you've obeyed my voice and all that I've commanded you. You fought all the battles we were supposed to fight. You participated in the conquest. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God is giving the rest, or has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies. You you can go back across the Jordan to the east side of the Jordan to your little inheritance which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave to you on the other side of the Jordan. Jump down to verse 9. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, 
their own land of which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. When they came to the region of the Jordan that's in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. Okay, they're still on Canaan's side, on the west side of the Jordan. They're about to cross over the Jordan, and these guys built a large-scale version of the altar that's in the tabernacle. Okay, that's all you know at this point. That's all the rest of Israel knows at this point, and they don't quite know it yet. They will, right here in this next verse. And the people of Israel heard it and said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan, a large-scale version of God's altar in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Okay, take in the context. These guys have just at war. They've just gone through the conquest and conquered Canaan. And now the other tribes, minus Gad, Reuben, and East Manasseh, are about to make war on Gad, Reuben, and East Manasseh because they built this altar. And here's how they read it. Well, let me first show you who they send as an ambassador. Verse 13. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest. Now, I don't know if you write in your margins, but I write in my margins in my Bible, and right next to Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, I wrote, yikes. Here's why. You don't need to turn to this text. I'll just read it for you. You can jot it down if you'd like to read it. I just want you to take in the details of how this thing is unfolding. Numbers chapter 25 talks about the people whoring with the daughters of Moab. Here's what happens. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. This is pre, um, it's, it's happened before where we are in the story. Okay, I, I don't know how many years in advance, but it's happened fresh enough to where it comes up here in a minute. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and Hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. Now, look, listen what happens. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they're weeping in the entrance to the tent of meeting. Okay, people are hanging dead as a result of being yoked to the Moabite women. And this dude marches his Midianite girlfriend right through the middle of the camp while they're weeping over these people that have died. And Phineas, the same guy that's the ambassador over here in, in this passage that we're looking at this morning, when Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber 
and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. He made a, a sin kebab out of them. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000 people. Okay, Phineas is the guy that actually, his actions led to the plague ending. And his actions obviously are pretty severe. And Phineas is the ambassador in this situation in Joshua chapter 22 where Gad, Reuben, and East Manasseh have made this huge version of the altar in the tabernacle. So Phineas, the son of Eleazar the priest, comes with ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them and the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead. And they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord. Now realize, when they see Phineas coming, this would be like sending... I'm going to date myself here. It would be like sending Charles Bronson to reconcile something. Maybe there'd be more current, Clint Eastwood. I can't think of any current day bad dudes, but sending, I mean, good, bad. Some of y'all older dudes are in here smiling about Charles Bronson. It's a great image. Charles Bronson shows up with all these chiefs and they say to, the, to Gad, Reuben, and East Manasseh, listen to the language. What is this breach of faith that you've committed against the God of Israel? And turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord. Listen to some of the language as it unfolds. Breach of faith. You've come against God. There's rebellion against the Lord. Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor? Referring to that event where Phineas took care of it from which even yet we've not cleansed ourselves, and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord, that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now if the land of your possession is unclean, if for some reason you're unhappy about the east side of the Jordan, if it's unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan the son of Zerah break faith in the matter of the devoted things and wrath fell upon the congregation of Israel and he did not perish alone for this iniquity? I'm going to summarize what these guys have said so far in this statement. The way they're representing this altar being built by Gad, Reuben, and East Manasseh is the sky is fallen. Y'all have bailed on the faith. You've come up as rebels against us and against your God, and this is tragic. Then the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, the mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows and let Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, don't spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt 
offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it. May the Lord himself take vengeance. They said, no, but we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben, you people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. Things are starting to come in focus now that they're communicating. So your children might make our children cease to worship if they don't understand, if there's no visual aid as a representation that we are part of you. Therefore, we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offerings, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you, between our generations after us, that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought, if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, oh, behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings, not for sacrifices, not to be rebels, not to, uh, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for bird offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. We're going to come back to the rest of that. I'm going to read the rest of that story now just because I don't want to wait. When Phinehas the priest and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words. That's a key word right there. Heard. When they finally sheathed their swords and stopped talking war and they actually listened to each other, when they heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord, and frankly, they've been delivered from war within, civil war. This example is, we're going to come back to the last couple of verses there toward the end of the sermon this morning. But this is just a wonderful example of the misunderstandings and conflict that come from poor communication. How many times do you find yourself or do you find someone else treating you in a way where they're thinking, I know what he's thinking. I know what they're doing with that altar. I know that they're about some of the words that are used here. They're about rebellion. I know that they're, this is a breach of faith. This is against the God or against our God. They're turning away from following the Lord. They are rebels building this for themselves. How many times do you find yourself in a situation, husband and wife, how, many, how often do we do it to each other? I know what she's thinking. Yeah, we don't even send a Phineas to find out. I know what she's thinking. It's time for war. How often does the wife turn to the husband? I know what he's thinking. He doesn't have to say. I don't have to ask him any questions. I know what his motives are. 
How often do we do it to each other in business settings? How often do we do it to each other in church settings? I know exactly what they're thinking, and I won't even bother communicating about it. That makes for war. The second type of conflict, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The first type of conflict is misunderstandings resulting from poor communication. The second type of conflict, we're going to come back to each of these four types at the second part of the message. The second type of conflict, I will just kind of characterize before we really look at it, as differences in values, in goals, in specifically gifting, calling, priorities, expectations, interests, or opinions. Listen to this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm going to start in verse 4. Paul's writing to a church that I'll just give you a little bit of context here, a little bit of background for the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church is not a model for much. In fact, the Corinthian church is really a great example of how low grace reaches. Because the Corinthian church, by design, at least by practice, is a real mess. Wrought with division, wrought with worldliness, and Paul is speaking into sort of the division issue right now. Listen to what he says in chapter 12, verse 4. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And then Paul uses a metaphor, an image of the human body. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Paul is escorting them into this image where they see the church in some ways as a metaphor like a human body. For the body does not consider, consist of one member but of many. If the foot, for example, should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That happens all the time in church. You may not know that. You may be actually a voice of that. I hear it all the time where people who may feel like themselves a foot think, well, nobody will miss me if I don't come or go. I'm not missed. I'm just a foot. I don't really have deep conversations with people. I don't really engage people on a deep, important level, so nobody will really miss me. Meanwhile, the rest of the body's going, I miss my foot. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Just saying it doesn't make it any less so. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. 
If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? Here's the problem. If everybody is an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If everybody is an eye, where would be the sense of footing? Where would be the handing? There would be all these different roles if everybody were an eye. If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? Be one big old ugly eye. Be crazy looking. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot and should not. I mean, I'm going to throw all kind of knots up in there. Must not say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again to the head or to the feet, I have no need of you. Paul is dealing with the reality that another very common type of conflict comes from people that are really just different giftings. Different priorities go with different gifting, different insights, different pursuits, different goals, different expectations, different interests, even different values and opinions. The church is made up of all these different parts. And Paul is talking to a divisive church saying those things are not meant for division, but are meant to be to come together, working as one body. I have, I guess, my experience in this, there's certainly experience in church where someone feels like they've got the answer and they've got the solution at the expense of everyone else. I find that this is a large part of marital conflict. Christy and I, we dated for five years, and before we were married, we were like, man, we're so alike. We have everything in common. We like to kayak. We like to mountain bike. I mean, we're like twins, except you're a girl. And we're not, we're not you know, uh, brother and sister. <laughs> Some things just aren't in your notes, and that was one of those things. Man, I find that this is a big part of marital conflict, and it started for us at our wedding day, or shortly thereafter where everything we realized that we had in common, we may have had common activities or common interests, but Christy sees the world so much differently than I do. She has a different set of eyes on the world than I do. And God's made it that way on purpose. It makes for tremendous amount of conflict in the church. It makes tremendous amount of conflict in marriage. It makes tremendous amount of conflict in business, in whatever team, whatever environment, Differences in values, goals, gifting, calling, priorities, expectation, interests, and opinions. The next type of conflict is competition over limited resources. Turn to Genesis chapter 13. We're going to come back to each of these types of conflicts, remember. Genesis chapter 13. So if you're feeling like you're kind of left hanging, that's on purpose. Let me set the stage for you for Genesis chapter 13 while you're turning there. The previous chapter is the call of Abram. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. In chapter 12, verse 4, we're going to read in in chapter 13 here in a second. Abram went as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. Lot is his nephew. I was trying to think last night of who would be a good example of Lot. And I asked Chrissy, I said, who in a, you know, a TV show or a movie comes to mind when we're talking about kind of pesky nuisance, you know, little Lot? 
And Christy said, it sounds like Eustace from the Don Treader to me. How many of you have seen Don Treader? Anybody read the Don Treader, C.S. Lewis? Okay, you really should read it or see the movie at least. Eustace, at least so you understand my illustration here. <laughs> Eustace is sort of a pesky little guy. He talks all nasal, and he's just sort of a bother. And as I'm reading about Lot, I'm thinking, man, you just sound so much like Eustace. So those of you who've read that book, who have done what you should do, read good books like that, or seen good movies, we'll climb into this in chapter 13. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Eustace went with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and gold, And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord, and Lot, who went with him, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land, here's the problem, here's the source of conflict, the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. So conflict happens. Not enough land to support their flocks. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. And Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me. It might be between our herdsmen, but let's between you and me work this thing out. And between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we're kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me, Eustace. If you take the left hand, I'll go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, I'll go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. This must have been a beautiful sight, this area. So Lot chose for himself what looked good to the eyes. All the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. This is just a great example of the conflict that comes from limited resources. In this example, it's not a great example because while Lot acts like the typical dude, Abram doesn't. But you can imagine more often than not that Abram's going to act just like Lot and then serious conflict results. Take for example, you may have been involved in an event like this or you may have seen this happen. How many families, once peaceful, go to war when an inheritance is being sorted out? How many families, once peaceful, go to war when it's time to work out an inheritance? How many people are clawing at what they think is fair? How many churches have gone to war over limited resources? I heard this last week. I have a a family member who is in a church where at the end of last year, there was an excess of funds. It's a good problem. And the excess of funds they decided to spend on a new organ. 
Okay, you might hear that and go, man, because we had like somebody gave us that organ back there. We're not like an organ church, you know, but this is a more traditional church where an organ, you know, is probably a big part of the worship. So you would imagine that the worship minister would be going, yeah, yes. Man, that's the way it's supposed to be. But you might imagine that the missions minister is going, man, that's wrong. That money should have been spent on missions. And that's exactly what happened. The next business meeting after that, after the new year, the missions minister stood up and said that money should have been spent on missions, not on an organ. Publicly said that. Since then, the whole staff has been decimated with people resigning. Limited resources and people arguing over limited resources. It happens in churches. It happens in homes. It happens in businesses. How many businesses have just gone under because partners couldn't work together and couldn't work through conflict having to do with limited resources. The fourth type of conflict is in James chapter 4. Turn there. The first one, conflict that results from poor communication. The second type of conflict, differences in giftings or values or goals. Third type of conflict, Competition over limited resources. The fourth type of conflict has to do with just pure D sin. You could understand how these other types of conflict could happen where people aren't necessarily being sinful. They may just not be communicating. Or there may be legitimately limited resources that they're just having a difficult time working through. This example, though, has to do with just pure D sinfulness. Listen to James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? This is going to be a go-to passage this month for us. We're going to really explore this passage. What causes conflict, we could say, among you? Is it not this, that your passions, you look down your note there on ESV, your pleasures are at war within you. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you don't ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions or pleasures. You adulterous people, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Just in that one passage, you can draw out some of the things that cause the quarrels and fights. It's the passions and pleasures that war within us, just pure D sin. There's others there, covetousness, friendship with the world, and pride. Just grab a few of the things that lead to conflict between God's people, between neighbors, between workmates, between husband and wife. In each of these cases, sin begets sin and conflict happens. Now, now that we've set the stage, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 8. 
Romans chapter 8. We're going to come back and look at all four of these types of conflicts, but we're going to look at all four of these types of conflicts with a new set of eyes, with a new lens on those conflicts. The new set of eyes comes from this passage, a near and dear passage to me, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. It's a passage that you should memorize. It will give you a whole new set of eyes on lots of things. But in regards to this next month, it's foundational that it give you a whole new set of eyes for conflict. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And we know that for those who love God, conflict works together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What I want you to see is foundational. We're going to look at all four of those things again just for a moment. But what I want you to see is foundational is this thing that we run from, this thing that we avoid, this thing that when we're in, we must feel like, man, we're just being really ungodly because we find ourselves in conflict. Is actually something God uses to glorify himself. It'll give you a whole new set of eyes and a whole new perspective on conflict. Turn back to Joshua chapter 22. Let me show you these, this truth. We stopped reading at verse 31, and I want to start reading at verse 32 of Joshua chapter 22. I want to show you what God does with conflict. Then Charles Bronson, Phineas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and the chiefs returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad, we could include, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, in the land of Gilead, to the land of Canaan, to the people of Israel. They go back to all the other tribes, the people that sent them out, the people that had their, sh- their, their, their swords out and sharpened. They're ready for war. Remember where we are? They built that big, monstrous version of what we have in the tabernacle. We're going to war. And he goes back and shares with them, brought word back to them, and the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. Having sent somebody to ask a few questions, now they find that the report is good in the eyes of the people of Israel, and the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. And here's the beauty. Here's the outcome of that whole thing. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness. They live now on the east side of the Jordan. They've set up their camp. Phineas has left. Things have settled down. The rest of Israel is not going to war to them with them. And they see this large-scale version that they can see from their side of the Jordan of the altar in the tabernacle. They see it across the way, and they say, you know what we ought to do? We ought to call that witness. We ought to give it a name, for they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. The thing I enjoy about this conflict is you see it, you go, man, this is a real mess and this thing's getting really ugly and it's going to go south and this thing's going to be really bad. But the outcome is a visible reminder of God's goodness. 
The outcome actually becomes a, I don't know how long that witness or that altar stood, but maybe for years, maybe for decades, for generations, there's this visible reminder, we're part of you. And that all came as a result of conflict, where the whole nation of Israel, not just Gad, Reuben, and East Manasseh, but the whole nation of Israel could look at that thing and say, what did they say here? The Lord is God. Only God could do that. Only God could take conflict that results from poor communication and make his name famous in and through it. He did it there, and he does it always. Secondly, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I should have told you to put a little bookmark in each of these, but I didn't. We left off with the eye not being able to say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. That's where we left off. And we're going to pick up here in verse 22. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow a greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. Now, here's the whole purpose of his design in the body, that there may be no division in the body. The very thing that often leads to division, when we don't understand it, we don't understand why this other person is not thinking like the eye, is the very thing that God has designed, that there may be no division in the body, so that it functions as one unit, but the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If the foot is hurt, the whole body is hurting. If the eye is celebrating, the whole body celebrates. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church apostles, prophets, uh, miracles, gifts of healing, helping, administration, various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess the gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret but earnestly desire the higher gifts. The thing that I enjoy about this passage, this 1 Corinthians 12 passage, is seeing the diversity within the faith that really if it's treated with God involved and if you're looking for his glory in it, you realize if it's working together as one body, it comes together as something that shouldn't be, a bunch of single instruments, but instead an orchestra or a symphony. It should be the banner to the world. It should be the evangelistic instrument where you see a body of believers coming together where a foot is being a good, faithful foot. Where a hand is being a faithful hand and the very thing that causes conflict is actually the thing that brings us together. Where we're walking in his design and his purpose. Diversity within the faith makes us greater than the sum of our parts. Going back to the marriage example, I used me and Christy as an example. Christy and I. I always get those mixed up. It's a great example of what God does in marriage. If I was married to a female version of Ben, we would be a mess. 
our children would be a mess. The best thing that ever happened to our children is that I didn't marry another Ben. I married a Christy, and she's very different. She sees, sees things very different. And if I'm wise, if I'm discerning, if I have any head on my shoulders, then I'm listening to that woman because I need her insight. And when I'm listening to it, we're greater than the sum of our parts. And likewise, the same is true in the church. Man, when we come into harmony with one another, God is glorified through the diversity, in the diversity, in the difficulty when we come into harmony and you hear that clarion note of harmony of the people of God or in a marriage and things are firing on all cylinders and he's getting the glory because you know he did it. That's the way he's designed the church. And the goal is unity, not uniformity. That's what that I wanted. I want everybody else to see it the way I see it. I want everybody else to hear it the way I hear it. That's what the ear wants. And that makes for conflict. But God is glorified when we're not pursuing uniformity, but instead pursuing unity, appreciating how he's made each of us different. And then the symphony and the orchestra works together. Sometimes some are quiet and others are front and center. Sometimes some are in support. And then sometimes others are leading. Genesis chapter 13, you don't need to turn there. I'll just share with you the outcome of Genesis chapter 13. The limited resources, that type of conflict where Abram and Lot go head to head and Lot says, or Abraham says, Lot, you go ahead and have first choice. The atypical response. God was glorified even in this outcome. God was glorified in bringing judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah as Lot chose with his eyes and Abraham chose by faith. God was glorified in bringing judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And God was glorified in bringing blessing to Abram. And the last example, the last type of conflict that results from just pure D sin. You might think through these other types of conflict and say, okay, I can see how God could be glorified in differing gifting whenever that kind of comes into harmony. I can see how God could be glorified in limited resources whenever that's sorted out like Abe and Lot did. I can see how God could be glorified whenever people actually start communicating well together instead of pulling out their swords and starting war. But how could God be glorified in just pure D sinful attitudes and desires? And how could he possibly use them for his own glory? I had to think about how the nation of Israel even happened. Most of you, I hope, know the story of Joseph. You know the story of Joseph, one among a number of brothers. Joseph and his brothers, conflict. Joseph was a bonehead. He was a whole lot more like Eustace than probably Lot. Marching out every day, telling his brothers about the last dream that he had, about how his brothers were all going to bow down to him, wearing his fancy coat that his dad gave him. And conflict happened. His brothers beat him up, threw him into a pit. He sold into slavery. And you likely are familiar with the rest of the story. It's a mess of conflict. And ironically, God used the sinful desires behind that. He used it for his own glory, and he gave birth to a people. It actually became part of the Psalms. Psalms are a collection of songs of God's victory. Listen to this Psalm 105. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing praise to him, tell of his wondrous works, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength, seek his presence continually. 
Remember the wondrous works that he's done, his miracles, the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abram, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. Fast forward in this psalm. When he summoned a famine on the land, he broke all supply of bread. He had sent a man ahead of them. He sent a man ahead of them. He's speaking of Joseph. While Joseph is in that mess, do you think Joseph is seeing himself as sent? You think Joseph is saying, man, I know this is all part of God's design, and I know that my family's not going to starve to death as I'm laying in the bottom of this pit. I know that God has a perfect plan and design for this, although Potiphar's wife is lying about me, and I'm being thrown into prison, and I'm being forgotten. This has become the song of the people, this conflict He had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. Until what he said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. Realize this is in a psalm about God's wondrous works. While Joseph's in the middle of that conflict, you think he's saying, this is a wondrous work. God is doing something great and glorious. And then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. And the Lord made his people very fruitful and made, him, made them stronger than their foes. God used conflict, even conflict that's a result of sinful desires, for his own glory. Thinking about the conflict that resulted in the Christian faith. The Hebrew people resulted, were born through the furnace of affliction in conflict. And the Christian faith is no different. Acts chapter 20, or Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching and he says this, these, these words in the middle of this Um, important sermon on the birthday of the church. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Conflict. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The nation of Israel was born through conflict, and guess what? You were born through conflict as well, whether you know it or not. Conflict between Jesus and the kingdom of heaven and the Pharisees and Sadducees and Rome and the world. We were wrought through conflict. I was thinking about this application too. Fast forward 1,500 years to the year 1517. The fact that I'm not wearing a funny hat this morning and a robe. The fact that you're not here with money in your pocket so that you can purchase some indulgences for your dead family members is a product of conflict. The Protestant faith is a product of conflict where a man named Martin Luther nails 95 theses to the Wittenberg Chapel door. We 
are a product of conflict. Because God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. You can't tell me that Joseph knew this was going to unfold the way it did. You can't tell me that Abram knew that it was going to unfold the way he did. I can't imagine that Abram wasn't sitting there going, man, that's where I wanted to live. That green, plush, beautiful land, that's where I wanted to live. But he said, you know what? I'm going to hold loosely to the thing that God has promised me, and I'm going to let Lot take it first. I can't imagine that he knows how that's going to unfold, that that beautiful land, Sodom and Gomorrah, is now going to be the Dead Sea. Christy and I floated on the Dead Sea last time we were there. It's the craziest thing I've ever seen in my life. You can't step into the Dead Sea because your legs pop out underneath you. You're so buoyant. You take a few steps, and once you get enough body in the water, you're just like a buoy. Because there's so much salt in it as a result of what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. You think Abraham knew how knew it was going to turn out that way? I don't think Joseph did either. But God works messes for his own glory. He's done it time and time again, and he does it now for those who love him. Seeing conflict with a whole new set of eyes should put us in a place where we don't have to peace fake anymore. I wrestled with whether I was going to share this with you this morning, and I think I'm going to, and this may be um, difficult for my family to hear. My parents listen to every sermon. But I'm going to tell you right now, the McGraws growing up are expert, experts at peace faking. Growing up in the McGraw house, if you were offended by something or hurt by something and you brought it up, then you were treated like a Martian and a freak. And then before long, you start believing, I must be a Martian and a freak because I'm offended and hurt by that. So you bottle it up and you bottle it and you bottle it and you bottle it until one day and it just explodes in a temper tantrum that people can't make sense of. And then again, you're even a worse freak. The McGraws have been great at peace faking because conflict can't be good. We must be sinful if we're in conflict, so let's just play like it's not there. Meanwhile, people will hurt each and never even confess and never even ask for forgiveness and never even offer it or extend it. The McGraws are experts at peace faking. And I realize we can, board, we can beget that in our own children. If all we hope for when we have that daily opportunity for a laboratory in our home to walk in what we're being equipped with, if all I'm hoping for is the absence of conflict, I'm going to beget the same thing that I experienced. Because peace is not synonymous with an absence of conflict. Can you hear that? Absence of conflict and peace are not synonymous. In fact, peace may come at the cost of working through conflict and working through it well. Absence of conflict and peace are not synonymous. We don't have to fake peace. We can actually work toward peace, realizing that conflict is an escort and an opportunity for God's glory. Instead of running from it, or acting like it's not there, we can embrace it. God's got a plan here. I don't know what it is yet. Like Abram, Joseph, I don't know what it is yet, but I know he's up to something. He's proved himself or and or. And he made me a promise that he's working all things together for good. I can trust that all things means all things. Yes, even this conflict. And it gives you a whole new approach. You don't have to run away from conflict 
and find a fresh start. You ever heard anybody say that? You ever done it? Man, I need out of this marriage. I just need a fresh start. I need out of this church. There's just too much conflict. I need a fresh start. I need out of this job. There's just too much conflict. I need a fresh start. It should give you a whole new set of eyes where you go, no, that's opportunity. I'm not going to run from it. I'm not going to bail on it because then I'll miss out on being an instrument of peace in a setting where the gospel will be on display if I walk faithfully in it. Fresh start, smashed mark. What even is that? Seriously. We don't have to fake peace. We don't have to run away. And we don't have to war. Instead, first of all, we can look for His glory in it. We can even expect His glory in it. It's not a matter of if we're going to have opportunities to do this. It's a matter of when. Part of this sermon may be thinking back on some opportunities that you've had that you blew. There's more coming, I promise. Unless you get hit by a car in a few minutes and are dead, there are going to be more conflicts probably today, this week. Opportunities for conflict abound, but you've got to see them as opportunities for God's glory. Because for God's people, they are. You don't ask for them. You don't look for conflict. But when it shows up, I promise you, God can and should be glorified through it. We're going to spend these next five Sundays dealing with how. How you can walk faithfully through that. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful for the connection to the dominion things that we've considered in these last couple of months. I'm thankful for this image of Christ seated by your right hand, having finished his work. I'm thankful that he is placing all things under his feet, that you are placing all things under his feet where and when the gospel is wielded. I'm thankful for seeing the role of the gospel in those sort of situations because it gives me a whole new set of eyes on conflict, realizing those are opportunities for dominion and opportunities to walk in dominion. And I'm so thankful for this sweet connection to seeing how you are glorified through that, how the gospel is on display when we have conflict that's a result of limited resources, conflict that's a result of varied gifts, Conflict that's even the result of just pure old, heartbreaking, sinful desires. I'm thankful you can use those things, even those things, maybe especially those things, to be glorified and put the gospel on display. Lord, I pray that we will be a people that will be characterized as a culture of peace that we will be a people that will learn how to examine ourselves, how to confess well, how to forgive well, how to restore, how to put the gospel on display, how to forgive as we've been forgiven. Lord, I need this. My family needs this. My children need this. God, 
Our elders need this. Our deacons need this. Our small group shepherds, our small group families, we need to learn how to walk well, bring glory to you in the thing that's so ample. Lord, I pray that just this morning, if there's any of us who's in the process of fleeing conflict, of seeking a fresh start because of conflict, I pray that conviction, I pray that you will work conviction in those seeking to evade conflict. And that first of all, with conviction will come the realization that you are enthroned, you are at work, and you are working all things, including that conflict, for your own glory. That we will look for it, we will seek it, we will embrace it. I'm thankful you're that kind of God. Pray these things in Christ's name. going to take the supper uh, together. Given what we've heard, there's the possibility of taking the supper wrongly, and I don't want us to do that. I don't want any of us to do that this morning, and so let me read from 2 Corinthians 5, 5 uh, verse 17. It says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ Jesus, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, not entrusting uh, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As we take the supper, we are recognizing him who knew no sin. We're doing it as ambassadors who are called to a ministry of reconciliation. So for a moment, before we take the supper, I want to make sure we're doing it rightly. I want us to consider the responsibility that we have in the supper. Usually we take the supper and we're, we're very mindful of all that God has done in Christ. What Christ suffered. How something happened outside of ourselves that we could not have achieved on our own. But we have to realize in our faith, we have responsibility in that as well. And so as we take the supper, I want us to consider the responsibility that we have. We take the supper in remembrance of Christ. We take the supper in anticipation of Christ. And our hope is that future generations will do the same. If you read through your Bible, you will always see a, uh, a tendency and an encouragement toward the future generations. That we would not become so consumed with the here and now that we lose sight of what's to come. And, and, and sowing the seed of the gospel in the lives of our children. So we hope that the way that we take the supper every week is something that will happen with our children, with our grandchildren, with our great-grandchildren. So what's the, the one thing that could possibly keep that from happening? What would be if, if we don't offer forgiveness? If we don't confess sins to one another, if we don't 
actually go and, and be reconciled as we're called to because of the ministry of reconciliation that's been given to us because we've been reconciled to Christ. In his book that Ben mentioned earlier, Ken Sandy, Peacemakers, he says, when believers are bitterly embroiled in disagreement or coldly estranged from one another, few people will pay attention when we try to talk with them about the reconciling love of Jesus Christ. Matthew 5 goes on to say that if anyone has anything against you, you leave your offering at the altar and you go and be reconciled. So here's my encouragement as we take the supper. If you're at odds with someone in this room, don't take the supper in just sort of a thing we do every week, not mindful. Go talk with them. If you need to leave here while we're passing out the supper and singing to make a phone call, do it. Because we need not take this supper the wrong way. We need not bring our offering to God the wrong way. So I'm going to pray. And then we're going to pass out the elements. And as we do, I encourage you to, to search your heart. Consider, am I moving in such a manner that I'm being an ambassador of Christ because of the reconciliation I have in Christ as one who's been called to the ministry of reconciliation? So let's pray. Lord, I'm very aware this morning that the enemy does not like when we talk about the reconciliation we have in Christ. It's not, it's not like when we talk about being peacemakers because division is such a wonderful tool for the enemy to use to keep us from accomplishing the purposes that you have set forth for us. So I pray for true peace. I pray for real reconciliation. I pray for true confession of sin and I pray for real forgiveness. Not just in concept, but I pray that in the coming hours in response to this sermon, in response to what you've shown us through the preached word, that the people of this body would make it a point to walk in obedience, to be doers of the word and not hearers only, and to go and ask for forgiveness where it is needed, to grant forgiveness where it is needed, and to walk in that truth so that we can show everybody how wonderful our Lord is. Lord, as we take this supper, I, I pray that we would do so with fidelity, that we would be true to what you have called us to, that we would take it carefully, that we would be mindful of what you have done and what you are going to do, and that we would not lose sight of future generations because we're so embroiled in, in current differences. Lord, I pray that you would help us through the preached word, as we take the supper, through prayer, through song, to see conflict as an opportunity for your glory, for the good of your people. Please speak to us during this time. Help us to keep in step with the Spirit and make wise decisions according to your will. In Jesus' name.